Good morning. So we are on second week of our new series that will go through the summer and probably a little bit longer. The more I get into it, the more there is to say about Jesus, of course. And uh, we're looking these first two weeks at the anticipation of Jesus. So you'll remember last week, um, the first type of anticipation that we looked at was uh, sort of like that movie analogy that... Uh, you anticipate the heroic turning point all the more with the direness of the circumstances that the, the movie script sort of sets up to begin with. The, the deeper the trouble that you're in, the greater the anticipation for the heroic moment. Or to put it another way, we anticipate the dawn with so much more anticipation depending on the darkness of the night. If the night isn't really very dark, then we really don't have that much anticipation for the dawn. Or... We anticipate our health based on the severity of the illness that we are recovering from. And so we looked at how in Scripture there is an anticipation that is built for Jesus that is built in the direness of the circumstances that we are in. And we looked at Adam and Eve and we looked at Noah and the flood and how the the circumstances of our sin and the utter lostness of the world created the anticipation for the Redeemer that was to come. But that's not the only anticipation that we have of Jesus in the Old Testament by any stretch of the imagination. God established over the course of history and in his law and among his people and through his prophets and examples, and he created examples and types and images and shadows and signs of Jesus over and over and over again. And so the whole Old Testament, the first, you know, 70 5% of your Bible or whatever it is, uh, I didn't add it up, but the, the whole first three quarters of your Bible is there for a good reason. The Old Testament is not kept uh, just as an afterthought. It's there to point us towards Jesus and to build into us this anticipation and to guide us as a tutor into the deeper truths of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he taught. And now you might say, well, we have the New Testament now, and, you know, why are we looking at the old? What's, what's the point? Aren't, aren't we going backwards on this side of the cross? Aren't we going backwards to go from the New Testament to the old? And, and in some respects, that's true. We are, we are looking at all of this from this side of the cross, and, and we're blessed in our generation to begin our relationship with God and begin with the fulfillment of the anticipation having already come. But in actual fact, if you look carefully, the Old Testament is never meant to be left behind entirely. In fact, the Old Testament was in some ways actually waiting for Jesus and waiting for the new covenant in order to come into its own fullest expression. The Old Testament was was waiting for this moment for for the church age in order to fully express itself. And listen to where I get this from in these really amazing verses about the Old Testament. Paul is teaching, the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians about the glory of the gospel as it compares the glory of the law, which was glorious, but then the glory of the law compared to the glory of the gospel. And he says that the law or the scriptures was veiled. It was covered. The way that you remember maybe that, that Moses covered the glory of his own face when God was actually giving him the law on Mount Sinai. And then Paul goes on to say, and he says essentially that the glory of the Old Testament has also been veiled up until the time it could be unveiled by the arrival of Jesus. He says this in 2 Corinthians 3.14. 
He says, but there, and he's talking about Israel or, or the Jews. He says, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses, and by that he means the old scriptures, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And so there's a very real sense in which the Old Testament has been waiting until this day to be unveiled. Because it couldn't really be explained or understood apart from Jesus, who it has always been talking about and who it has always been pointing towards. And so, in fact, we're not really approaching this backwards. The Old Testament in fact, is expected to be understood in the light of the same Jesus that it anticipates. It's actually on this side of the cross and on this side of your faith in Jesus that you can actually appreciate the Old Testament in its fullness. And that's why we are able and now able to go back into the Old Testament and see it from this side of faith and this side of the cross. Listen to what Paul says. He says, all scriptures is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the scripture that Paul is talking about, keep in mind, obviously, is the Old Testament. That's the Bible that he had was the Jewish scriptures. And so all scriptures, Paul says, is profitable. And Jesus himself could not be any clearer as he says to the Pharisees this exact same point. He says in John 5.46, he says to the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And so Jesus, Jesus says, Moses was talking about me, and you've got Moses, but you don't believe what Moses says. And so why am I surprised that you don't believe me? Because the Old Testament has been talking about me, and you Pharisees, have never understood it. You don't believe what Moses is teaching. And so essentially Jesus is saying, what I say and what Moses say are the same thing. And so we come to a second thing the Old Testament is doing in anticipating Jesus then, a second kind of anticipation. It's not only establishing our great need of a Redeemer and creating anticipation in us by establishing the fallenness of mankind and our utter depravity and our complete lostness in turning away from God, It's also meant to be teaching and training us to recognize the Redeemer when he comes and when he teaches. And the Old Testament scriptures are for Israel preparing them for the Messiah that they would see arrive. And the Old Testament scriptures for us are illuminating the Messiah that has come. And so in that way, it creates anticipation in our own lives. It should create anticipation as we read the Old Testament to see the shadows and the pointers and the signs and the prophecies of the Jesus and the Messiah that we know. It creates anticipation for us to know Jesus all the more in the New Testament in what he teaches us. In Luke 24:27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, you remember this, Jesus is walking with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so I looked it up, the road to Emmaus. Emmaus was about seven miles away from Jerusalem that they were walking to. And I looked it up, we walk about three miles an hour. So Jesus had a little over two hours to go over the Old Testament scripture with them. So I hope you're not hungry. Um <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm going to try and do it in 20 minutes, okay? But he had, just so you know, he had over two hours. But he 
opened up the scriptures to them and taught them about himself from the Old Testament. And let's look really briefly at the many ways in which the Old Testament anticipates Jesus with that veil removed. We have the veil removed now. We can anticipate it. And then we're going to look at the promise. And we're going to look at the covenants. And we're going to look at the people. And we're going to look at the history. And we're going to look at the prophets. And we're going to look at the law. And all these things, God has ordained and purposed and has sovereignly guided all these things to point us towards Jesus. So we already looked last week. Actually, I'm just going to pray before I get into that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have this opportunity to, oh, so quickly, just have a taste of what it must have been like to walk with Jesus and, excuse me, have him open up the scriptures and show how Moses and the law and the wisdom books and the prophets all spoke of him. So, Father, open our eyes, remove the veil that we can see. We can see the glory of your Son in your history and in your law and in your people and in the shadow of things to come that you established in your old covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing is the promise, and we already looked at that. We looked at the promise that he gave to Eve, remember, uh, from the very beginning, Genesis 3, it didn't take us long to mess up, and as as Jesus is speaking to Adam and Eve, he says to Eve, he says, you will put em- I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of the serpent of Satan, and, be- and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. And so there was this promise right away that there would be an offspring, and this offspring would crush the head of the serpent even as his heel was being struck. And so that we had that first glimmer of the hope of the Redeemer that was to come. And then the covenants, we looked at Noah's covenant. At the end of of last week, we saw the foreshadowing of a new covenant to come after, after the whole world had turned away from God and was not worthy of continuing. And God said, I regret making man and I'm going to wipe them out. And he saves Noah, the one man who was not perfect, who would go on to sin and was sinful, but who agreed with God in his fallen nature and that God was righteous and he was not. And Noah preserves his promise and preserves his covenant through Noah so that that seed would still arrive that he promised. But at the end, we saw the glimpse, the foreshadowing of a new covenant to come because as Noah made a perfect and complete sacrifice, you remember it says that Noah made a sacrifice of every kind of clean animal. Every clean animal he made a sacrifice of. It was a perfect and complete sacrifice. And after that perfect and complete sacrifice... God established a new covenant with Noah. And that was a glimmer of a perfect and complete sacrifice that was to come in the future and a new covenant that would come after that more perfect and more complete sacrifice that would come in the future. And so again, we had that hint in the covenants. And then you look at Abraham's covenant. If we were to go deeper into the covenants, and again, 20 minutes, as we go deeper into the covenants, there's the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17. And and God unpacks for Abraham the things that he is going to do through Abraham that point towards Jesus. Again, he says that from your, from you Abraham will come a nation and from that nation will come an heir and that heir is the promised seed. And so through Abraham that seed continues to that future child in his line who eventually have a kingdom forever. And his people will be the recipients of a promised land. And who are his people? It says that he will be the father of a great nation. But through him and through Abraham, many nations will be blessed. 
And so that covenant is pointing forward to Jesus to a time when God is not just this God of the Jew- Israel. And he was never really just a God of Israel. I could show you that, but that's different. But he wasn't just this God of Israel. He would be a God of the whole world. It would be through Abraham that every nation would be blessed. And you see the Apostle Paul explaining this in Galatians 3.8. He says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, God is is preempting the arrival of the gospel and the going forth of the gospel to all the nations of the world, even here in Genesis 12, as he explains his promise to Abraham. And then especially notice this, that the covenant that he has with Abraham actually starts with 400 years of captivity. You remember that in Genesis, uh, I think it's 15, where he, he, he renews the covenant, he takes the animals and he divides them, and the smoking torch goes through the animals uh, divided, and he swears this covenant with Abraham, and he says, this is what's going to happen. Your people are going to be in captivity for 400 years. That's the first thing he says. What kind of covenant starts with 400 years of captivity? But, It is a picture of the reality of the new covenant, that Jesus is coming to a people who are held captive by the world, that our covenant relationship with God begins with our captivity. And so even in the Abrahamic covenant, we have this picture of a new covenant coming, a picture of not just a single nation, but a whole world that is in captivity and requiring redemption. And Paul and the other writers of the New Testament are crystal clear that God's old covenant was fulfilled in the new. It was always meant to point us to Jesus and the inclusion of all the nations in this promise of release from captivity should they turn to the Redeemer. And not the promise of a promised land, but a promised life for eternity. But then also consider not only the promise and the covenants, but the people. And there are lots of different people that God raised up in the Old Testament as pointers and as foreshadowers of Jesus who is to come. Right? And I could go through a whole bunch of them here. We could look at Abraham uh, and, and what we talked about in terms of his covenant. We could look at Isaac, who was a willing sacrifice and who carried uh, you know, the wood of his own sacrifice to the altar where he was to be sacrificed. Um, We could look at Joseph, Joseph who was rejected by his own family, by his own people, just as Jesus was rejected. Joseph who was eventually uh, killed symbolically by his people, who was buried in prison for years and then was raised up by a king to be a prince and that all the nations came and bowed, excuse me, to Joseph. And that as these nations came to Joseph and as he was bowing, he provide for, provided life to them in the form of grain and he saved them from the famine that was put upon them. And so he was raised up as a prince and as a supplier of life to the nations. And so you have this picture in the story of Joseph, of Jesus. And it's meant to point towards the real Redeemer who is coming. Or we could look at Moaz, or we could look at Boaz, and, and you remember when we did Ruth, you remember Boaz as a picture of Christ, who was this righteous man who followed the law, who would pay any price to be able to redeem this Gentile woman, Ruth, who's not even an Israelite. He would pay the price and fulfill the law to love her and redeem her and bring her into the nation of Israel. And so you have Boaz as a picture of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and you can read Hebrews 11 if you want some homework. Go read through Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 gives you a summary of all of these people that by faith were pictures of Christ to come. 
But let me just look at one particularly interesting one. One person, I think, uh, that we can look at in Genesis 14, Melchizedek. There's this person, Melchizedek. And let's read Genesis 14, 17 to 20. After his return from the defeat, this is Abraham. After his return from the defeat of Shirdalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaddah, what is, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Melchizedek is a very clear type of Christ in the Old Testament. With the veil removed, the New Testament writers could see exactly who Melchizedek was. His name carries great meaning, and also the city from which he was king of, as we will see. But first of all, notice that he's a priest of the Most High, or he is a priest of El Elyon. And, and you think, wait a minute, Abraham has not even started having babies yet. Right? God came to Abraham, made a promise to him that he'll be a great nation, that that nation would be in captivity in Israel and that they would follow God. But there is no nation of Israel yet. There is no priesthood. God has only at this point in Genesis been talking to Abraham, hasn't he? So who is Melchizedek? And how is he a priest of God Most High? And how is he bringing to Abraham bread and wine, the symbols of Christ? Isn't it amazing? How God has planted in the Old Testament these foreshadowings, these pictures of Christ. He's presenting, this is a, this is a, a priest king who is presenting the symbols of bread and wine, and Abraham is offering him a tenth of his goods in honor. What other priest king offers us bread and wine? And in the New Testament, we see the anticipation of Jesus in the Old. They have the veil removed, and so you have in Hebrews, them explaining this. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. They can see it now. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then also a king of Salem, which is king of peace. A city that would become Jerusalem. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. That's Melchizedek, painting a perfect picture for us of our King Priest Jesus. And all these things Jesus could be teaching to the followers as he's walking with them on this road to Emmaus, and he's unpacking these stories. And you can just imagine their minds are just getting blown as Jesus teaches them these things, that they can see what God has been doing for 2,000 years to prepare them for the Messiah. But it's not just in the promise and the covenants and the people, there's also the history as you go through the history that God sovereignly guided his nation through, you have Israel and the Passover and their rescue from Egypt. And, and I don't have time to go into it all, but you have a lamb that is sacrificed and the blood of that lamb 
smeared on the doorposts and so that people who were under the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death would pass over and that they would be saved by the sign of the blood of this Lamb that is over them. And then in the desert as they are moving through the desert and they are needing salvation from their starvation in the desert, God sends them manna. He sends them literally bread of life from heaven. And in John 6, you have Jesus teaching um, on the side of the hill and he's explaining to them. He says in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And the people get angry. They get upset. Who is this guy? Isn't he just this son of Joseph, isn't he just this this carpenter guy? And he is saying that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. They know what he was talking about. He was talking about manna. He was saying that he was what would rescue them in their desert. Jesus is the rock that was struck in Exodus 17 that Moses struck and water came forth from. He is the rock. It says in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains this, that it was Jesus who was struck. And in being struck, the water of life flowed from Jesus to us. All these pictures of Jesus in the history and the events of Israel. He is the bronze serpent that was lifted up. You remember the plague that was upon the people. And God told Moses that the only way to save them from this plague was to fashion this bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And so the serpent, this bronze serpent was lifted up over the people of Israel and any who looked upon the serpent that was lifted up were cured. And Jesus is lifted up and any who look upon him looked up, the the bronze serpent being of judgment, the bronze of judgment. Anybody who looks at, at the son who is being judged on the cross and lifted up on the cross to be judged and we look upon him, we are saved just as Israel was saved. And so God has sovereignly built into the history and the events of Israel all of these pictures of Jesus to build anticipation and to teach us what Jesus really means when he arrives on the scene in Palestine as a baby. And then not just the history, but also the prophets. You have all of the prophets and the visions, and you can look at Isaiah 9 and 53, those messianic prophecies of Isaiah that speak to Emmanuel and the God who is coming. Or you can look at Isaiah 6 and that famous passage where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he filled the whole temple with his glory. And then in John, as John is writing, he explains that he says that Isaiah, what Isaiah saw was that he saw Jesus. He says, and he saw him, meaning Jesus, lifted up. That it was Jesus that Isaiah was beholding. And then you have all the messianic psalms, Psalm 110, and and all of those psalms that speak of the, the suffering servant and the one that would need to be broken for the salvation of our sins and the descendant and the heir of David who was coming, and and an heir of David that would sit on his throne forever. And then you can look at Daniel and the visions that Daniel had of Jesus and the end times and Ezekiel and all of his visions. And you can look at Malachi and all the minor prophets and all the things that the prophets had to say about Jesus. Thousands upon thousands of prophecies that all came true, fulfilled in Jesus. And then you have the law. Not just the history and the prophets, but also the law. And you have the sacrifices and the feasts. We talked about the Passover lamb. But then you also have the scapegoat. You have the goat on the Day of Atonement where the high priest, this one day, lays his hands on this goat 
And he transfers symbolically all the sins of Israel to the scapegoat. That's where that word came from, if you ever wondered where the word scapegoat came from. He, he transfers all the sins of Israel onto the goat. And that goat is released outside of the camp, sent into the wilderness. It's sacrificed. It's, it's, it's gone. The sins of Israel are sent out and they're sent away. And they're gone. Or you have the sin offering of Leviticus and explained again in Hebrews. Or you have the trespass offerings and you have the peace offerings. You have all these these symbols and offerings that are established in the law of God to teach us about who Jesus is and what he is accomplishing and what he is doing on the cross. And he's accomplishing all these sacrifices for us. And all these things point to Jesus and they anticipate his coming, what he'll do, and they illuminate what he'll teach. And so you say, okay, that's that's fine, Paul. What does all that mean then for us on this side of the cross? And so as as we're getting ready for this series, as we're looking for this series on Jesus, these first couple of messages are really just meant to build anticipation, and I hope hope that's getting accomplished. We're, t- we're trying to build anticipation for who we're going to learn about, for the life we're going to look into, for the things that he's done and the things that he's going to teach. There should be an anticipation that is building in us as we seek to to finally move beyond the pointers and beyond the illustrations and past the shadows to the real thing of Jesus. And what I hope to show is that, the, that all of Scripture speaks of Jesus and to encourage you to look closely at the Old Testament. It is really necessary for us on this side of the cross with the veil removed to look back into the Old Testament in order to fully understand everything God is teaching us through Jesus in the New. I really believe that. I think there are things that Jesus and the apostles are teaching us in the New Testament that don't really come into the full glory of everything that they mean and everything that they are without seeing them expressed in the Old Testament as well. You can't really understand what the law of Christ is without first understanding what the law of God was in the Old Testament and what it was pointing towards. And so we want to look at the anticipation of Jesus in that way. Well, there's another way that I can put it. Let me try and leave it with you this way. The first kind of anticipation we looked at was an anticipation of hope. It was the depth of the darkness that created the anticipation for the dawn. It was the crisis before the rescue that created that anticipation. And you know that that builds anticipation, right? You understand that that's a kind of anticipation that's built. The darkness before the dawn and the, and the crisis before the rescue. But there's another way that anticipation is built. It's like the anticipation of something, of two types I'll give you, of, of either, of something being illuminated or of training for something. That's another way. You can imagine something that's shrouded in darkness, right? Like it's your birthday and, and you, you think you're gonna get something really amazing for your birthday. And your dad takes you out to the garage, but the garage is like pitch black, right? And you know what the garage is for, so you're hoping, right? And one little light comes on, right? And you can't really see, but there's a shape there. And, and it's a nice, it's a big shape and that's good, right? And then another light comes on and you can see it's something and it's red and it's, it looks like it has headlights because something's reflecting, right? And then, you know, another light comes on and you can see, oh, you, now you can see the shape. It is a Mustang and the Mustang is, that's the shape that, that's the shape you were hoping for, right? Right? And then the lights come fully on and you can see it is the, you know, the whole whatever turbo V8 sport super convertible package that you just it's the most expensive mustang you can buy right and is that anticipation as things are illuminated slowly anticipation grows right and as you read through the old testament there's this illumination that's taking place and as things are illuminated our anticipation grows for the reality 
Or the second way, as you look at the Old Testament, is the idea of training for something. Right? As, you, as you're preparing for something, the anticipation of it heightens. Right? And so you can think, like we have the Pan Am Games going on right now, and you can imagine those athletes as they start out, um, you know, first, you know, 10 years old paddling a kayak out on the lake, and they're thinking, this is great. And then they see kayaking and, and Olympic kayaking on TV, and they think, I want to do that. And so then they start going to the gym, and they get a trainer, and all those years go by, and they realize they're aiming at the Pan Am Games, and the anticipation builds and builds and builds until finally they can get to the games and medal at the games. But the anticipation is building as they're training. And the Old Testament is training us towards what is coming. Or you can imagine, I saw on Facebook, Victoria Archibald got her, is she here today? No, she's probably at Mediva. But she got her driver's license, right? You know the anticipation as you, you, you get, you study all the signs and you read the book and you go in and you take your test and you do the written test and then, you know, you're allowed to drive but only be with your mom or dad in the car and so that's okay, it's good. But you're anticipating that day and then you go for the road test and, and you drive some more and they test you and you pass the test and then you can drive on your own. Right? And you have that glorious day when they give you the car and you head out on the road all by yourself. And if you're a Lester, you roll it. (laughs) Everybody else, though, has that awesome first day. And so it's the training that builds the anticipation of the freedom that is to come. And so it's that type of anticipation that I'm talking about as we look into the Old Testament. God could have designed redemptive history any way he pleased. And contrary to all of our expectations, for his own purposes, God set his favor on Abraham. And he commenced an amazing 2,000-year history with Abraham, with law and sacrifices and people and prophets and prophecy and all these things for 2,000 years that would, in the fullness of time, finally bring forth Christ, the Redeemer for all the world. And the main thing that I hope that this shows this morning is that God's 4,000-year-old, and at this point now, 4,000-year-old relation to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to Israel and, and all this immense uh, uh, purpose is of importance, right? That God planned this sovereignly to unfold it this way. And I want us to see that as we go into learning about Jesus. Because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15.4, he says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Which Paul's just saying, this should build anticipation in you. There should be a hope for the dawn because of the darkness of the night. There should be a hope for the Redeemer because of the crisis that we're in. God has planned it this way to give us these thousands of years of training and teaching and anticipation of the mighty Redeemer who he was going to reveal in full in Christ Jesus. And so the Old Testament is for encouragement, it's for anticipation, it's for hope. That that the dawn is not just coming, but for us the dawn is here. That redemption is not only a promise, but that the Redeemer has come. That our salvation is not far away from us, but our salvation is right here at hand. Use the Old Testament to anticipate Jesus in the sense of training ourselves, of teaching ourselves by the types and the shadows of things that we will learn and are learning in the reality of who Jesus is. These things guide us towards the fullness of who Jesus is and what he accomplished and how he fulfills the purpose of God and how we are to be transformed by him. We love the Old Testament. We love the Jewish scriptures. It's sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. 
When I get back in two weeks, we're going to continue the series with the incarnation of Jesus. We're finally going to get there. We're going to get to the incarnation of Jesus. And that's going to be out in the park with all our brothers and sisters from the other churches. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that in your scriptures you have built up this anticipation. It just builds and builds and builds and builds. And at the same time as you're building that anticipation, you are lifting off the veil so that it's illuminated so that we finally see your grand sovereignty and your grand purpose and why you would choose Abraham and Israel and why you would rescue them from Egypt and sacrifice a lamb and why the servant had to suffer and die and how you would redeem the whole world and how in the end it will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation giving you glory. And you have taken off the veil and you've illuminated this for us. And so, Lord, make us faithful to love you and love your word for what it has taught us. Help us to see in every verse the pointers towards Jesus because he is our savior, he's our redeemer. And if that veil is still on for anybody this morning, if if they're still not getting it, if their heart does not resonate with this, Father, have them ask a friend, have them ask me, have them ask anyone here who knows you what it means to be rescued and to have that veil removed, to see the glory of your Son and be loved by Him. Because it is right here at hand. The day of their salvation is today. So Lord, make that happen, if it be your will. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We stand on it and nothing else. In Christ's name, amen.